Welcome to Debt to Cinema. I'm Stephen Maltmanex. And I'm Brian Gillis. Like most people, we love going to the theater and catching latest releases. However, sadly, put a big dent in your wallet. Fortunately, living in the digital age makes the viewing possibilities endless from the comforts of home. Many of these films that you can see right from your couch, we're ashamed to say we miss, despite labeling ourselves cinephiles. So join us as one or both of us cross off a title from our list of shame. It can be an all-time essential classic. Or an underrated piece of cinema that's worth giving a shot. Hell, it might just be some trashy film we want the other's opinion on. So sit tight and join us as we pay off our debts. One dollar. At a time. This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. You think we can do this? Harry Cole is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Cole. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It was the hell of a scandal, too. Look, did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him, just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. I do personally find it just a little bit funny, and you kind of sort of started this, at least this interest in my mind, with uh, all the President's Men and just kind of how things keep going back to Watergate and then my interest in revisiting Frost Nixon. And it's not so much that this movie, when it came out, it kind of was loosely tied to that, even though it was by sheer coincidence. But I think just this Mm -hmm. idea of things happening in politics and... I don't know. It's it's just funny how that kind of influences my line of thinking right now. Don't you know that things go in cycles just the way that Bobby Brown is amping like Michael? This for the quest. Quest got the booking. Come on, everybody. Let's get for the booking. Come on, everybody. Let's get with the five. Sorry. Uh, bad bad tribe. I, I, I got the first part of what you were saying, and then you completely lost me. But it's tribe um, called quest lyricism. Um... Th- things go in cycles, like everything. And yeah, yeah Nixon and Watergate like, come back it, and... Though. The, the way the media probably boomed when cable was coming out is kind of the, the same kind of transitional periods that we're going through currently with the advent of streaming and better than that, just cord cutting in, in general and how the Internet's become ubiquitous. And these kind of fears that this film raises about surveillance, mm-hmm. look at them even outside of Watergate and Nixon and kind of that fascination that, yeah, maybe I began with all the president's men. Look at some like Citizen Four or the real wiretap type things that NSA was doing with Yahoo just less than oh, a yeah, year yeah. ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's specifically. And I mean, the idea here, it's loosely tied to the theatrical release for um, for The Circle. It's just this idea of surveillance, really. But I mean, yeah, just this idea of like there being no privacy. Like just, I mean, the way that it's communicated in just with that, especially that opening shot of this movie, just this overlord mm-hmm. shot of just like looking at a crowd, like of just of complete strangers and being then able to pinpoint one of, singular conversation. Yeah, of, of people like just being spied on and nowhere is safe. And this is in a time where they don't even have smartphones or anything like that. Like we're just, there's still this sort of paranoia that you're being watched. It's, it's crazy how timeless this is in that sense. Um, it's, it's weird though, because I still haven't seen it or its remake. But as you kind of pointed, everyone just believed just because this film came out, I think like a month or two after Watergate Mm -hmm. happened, or not necessarily happened, but once the investigation began. And it's like, no, Francis Ford Coppola came up with this script in the mid-60s. Like, he saw Michael Antonioni's blow up in, like, 66, 65, 
And then he, he was like, well, what if instead of being photography, it was audio surveillance? And so he sat on a script for basically a decade until he made The Godfather and he had enough clout to his name that he could get this thing off the ground. Yeah. But apparently, like, when he did Finian's Rainbow, there's an interview out there where someone asked him, like, oh, what's your next project? And he goes, oh, it's called The Conversation. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, that didn't come true for, like, eight more years. But Yeah, like, I mean, this had to have been, like, a, well, some sort of passion project where, like, mm-hmm. Just after The Godfather, you know, he has enough clout after the experience of making that movie where just nothing was going his way and there were fights in there. And then Not to he mention, gets complete creative control on Godfather 2. But it's insane that this came out that same year and that he got to make year. this in between. Like this fairly small character study. And then he goes back to doing something like big and epic like The Godfather, Even- just this period piece, which is so lush and cinematic. And yet this feels so rough and just very much of its time in a way that's also timeless and still holds up today. Even beyond that, though, just the people here that are present in the Godfather films. Robert Duvall has a little cameo. The Shire family's connected in some way or other. David Shire here doing an awesome score, which was actually yes. composed before the film was even shot, which never fucking happens. Like, that's that's the, the score for this movie, man. Like just for something this small, it's. It's such an interesting mishmash just like of like just this very just dissonant jazz like score that has like no harmony whatsoever. But yet it's still so emotional Mm -hmm. at the same time that, you know, just really gets you inside this character and like just sums them up really well as far as what's going on in their head. Like especially with Harry Call, just like how, you know, he has this the probably the one thing that you get close to like an artistic ambition or just something that he really appreciates that he personally enjoys. Yeah, and just jazz in general, and, like, that's the one thing that, like, really gives him any peace whatsoever in his life, which is a complete fucking mess, and it's just, like, a a beautiful kind of mess, in a way. I I think it's so bizarre where this film kind of sits in history, because I hadn't seen it for the longest time, and I'm not exactly sure, you know, it's just one of the selections on the show, it's like, well, why hadn't you seen it? Fuck if I know. I just well, a lot of people I hadn't seen it. Like this is this was a Best Picture nominee. It's one of those great movies. It won the Palme d'Or. Yeah, like until people talk about it, like again after seeing it, they're like, yeah, no, that's still fucking great. But you know, Godfather Two is going to be talked about when it comes to like winners of 1974. Yeah, especially directed by Francis Ford Coppola. This went up against Godfather Part Two for Best Picture, which is just kind of funny. He got two movies nominated in one year. No one does that. He was at his height at that point. And it also very, very narrowly beat out Jack for me to be my new favorite Coppola film, maybe. I don't know. I'm I'm so connected to Jack. I love that film. Jennifer Lopez, Bill Cosby... Robin Williams. I still have not seen it. It's so good. It's so bizarre. Just to see that and to think in your head, this is the guy that made The Godfather in Apocalypse Now. And now the conversation's like, whoa, that's a a fucking 180, 100%. Mm -hmm. You got to see it. It, It's it's good. It's it's a it's a fu- it's very he's been unique very too. good about experimenting like even in his work now even if it hasn't well, who, really who reached out to people he doesn't repeat himself though like uh, that's the I thing respect with that. like it doesn't just, seem like many movies are the same and I you know I like that he doesn't feel like he has to anymore he can do whatever he wants yeah he can 100% fund everything just through the you know the fucking wine that he sells so yeah has, you know look at his family look at the Coppola Cage Schwartzman Shire <laughs> family the the Hollywood 3.0 like renaissance yeah. men everyone is writing directing acting composing producing. producing they all do it doesn't matter if they're a guy a girl 
Jewish or Italian or Italian Jews. I don't even know how that family is com- like composed, to be honest. It's so I don't know so, how so they confusing. all relate to one another in in which way or I, well, I don't know. Sophia it's, is that's Francis the daughter Ford's daughter. Francis, that's the big one. Who's Roman Coppola? Uh, Roman is uh, I think it's Sophia's older brother. Nicholas Cage is Coppola, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. Schwartzman is also his nephew because Jason Schwartzman is Talia Shire's daughter, uh, son. Wait, really? Yeah, Talia Shire is Francis that. Ford Coppola's sister. That's the you know the star of Rocky among other things. And she was also, I think, um, the wife of uh, Sonny in uh, The Godfather, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she yeah. stars in The Godfather, which is just bizarre. Who puts their sister as the love interest <laughs> in their first big movie? Well, when it's but, James Caan, right? Huh. It was James Caan that was the love interest, I think, for that one, right? No, I'm talking about Al Pacino's girlfriend. Like, no, no, no. That wife. was um, that was uh, what's what's her name? Uh, uh shoot, who played Kay? I'm I'm gonna hit myself on that one. Uh, oh, it's, it's uh, Diane Weist or it's no, Diane, Diane. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wh- you got what's it. Uh, Keaton. Keaton, yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't seen those movies in so long, and I've only seen them once. So, like, you know, my memory <laughs> They're great, is, is hazy at best. But yeah, Tally Shire is in The Godfather, among other things. I mean, that family is all over the place. Like, I just, I still love that at least Nicolas Cage removed the name from his career before it began. Like in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it says Nicolas Coppola. Yeah, that's like his yeah. only one of his only billings in the family, and then he quickly <laughs> ditched that before he became because he doesn't even have a line in that film. He shows up for a second. Let's uh, let's leave that in the dust though. Um, not not the topic on hand. It, it's interesting. We're talking about Watergate and how this is like connected. It's so strange. It's too unbelievable not to be true type of shit. The surveillance equipment in this the film, the process of taping it, yeah, just everything about it. Like literally the same equipment they used <laughs> was used by Nixon's staff at Watergate. Like and it just happens to be by happenstance. That's that's so cool and so bizarre. In, in the best kind of way. It's like, oh, no shit people thought this was about that. And even still, you could see it, like, I guess, even though we're so far removed. Like, who, but outside of us bringing up all the President's Men a couple of weeks ago, or, mm-hmm. yeah, like, Forrest Gump happening and passing, or as you said, you know, like, Frost Nixon. Like, these moments in time where Richard Milhouse Nixon is relevant for some other, uh, some reason or other. I guess just this presidency. The only thing that is more interesting than that is how this is essentially an Enemy of the State prequel. <laughs> I want to watch that movie again now because, um, uh, you know, from I like I've not seen it, I think, in about a couple of years, but I've mm-hmm. never watched them closely enough to think that or just to see what the threads are. Oh, like, this no, is my there's very um, obvious connections, even if it's never referred to in that film by Tony Scott. Yeah. Just the nature of Gene Hackman being uh, a dude who is a loner with like really weird fashion like he wears the rain and you know he shit. has a history of like living uh, yeah, in new york because exactly. they refer to that here i i can't even remember if they mentioned his name but then at the same they time, mention his name it's not the name here but it's like but after he could have changed his name exactly at that for this character it's like, it's, con- ex- it's entirely conceivable to the point even i was reading on imdb that there's like some images on screens in enemy of the state of a younger gene hackman and they're 100 percent stills of the conversation <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't an accident. Like I'm someone sure it was like a cool reference, but yeah, you could totally it's see like that, that. Jerry way. Bruckheimer probably conceived it that way. He's like, hey, what if we like kind of made a sequel to the conversation, except it stars Will Smith? And it's like, yeah, why not? Man, I gotta say, you know, like I, I really love just the process of how they capture 
like the, the stuff with their recording equipment in this. It's like, even you know, they for do something time, yeah. for something that is low tech and you know it's not digital, but it still feels very exciting and just clever how it's used, and you're just so fascinated by the process. And it's like, yeah, they do it one time, but it's well, really cool twice. to watch it. Well, three times, three. There's three different recordings. There's the main one from the titular conversation. Yeah, There's but then also the, how they edit it, you know, like yeah, in the process a lot, of syncing up all those tapes see and it, seeing which one to get into. There's the pen mic in the middle of the film, and yeah. then there's the the final oh fuck moment where, oh, my apartment might be bugged. Um, yeah. But it's, it's funny, that opening shot, and it's a long one at that, mm-hmm. really spectacular. It's the only thing shot in this film not by the actual DP. By Haskell Wexler. Yeah, did you read about this story? I've heard about it, yeah, that he got fired uh, fairly, I want to say, like a few weeks in the process. It's like yeah, the not re- ex- or maybe a, about a few days. It's like the reverse um, Eric Stoltz where it's not the star but the person behind the camera yeah, that gets it's, fired while shooting. It's kind of bizarre, and it happened twice the same year. Pretty Well, like a year – it happened a year or two later. Um, so, yeah, Haskell Wexler, which I've – I, I was like, oh, what, huh? Like, I hadn't heard the name, but I guess I'd seen his shit, so he did. I know, like, what, uh, like in some ways, George Lucas is connected to that guy. Yeah, um, he was, like, a designer for the American Graffiti look, I think. I, I guess the argument happens on this film where he originally wanted to kind of shoot it like the Thomas Crown Affair, like almost like a, a romance, like uh, artistic way. And Coppola wanted him to shoot it like Medium Cool, a movie they directed, which I've actually seen. And it takes place, I think it's at the Democratic National Convention of 1968. And it's shot in like a cinema verite way where people are actually like cameramen, like newscasters out in the field and like kind of like a Nightcrawler-esque way. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very low budget, very shoestring, very hip, um, lots of handheld camera work. There's like a really interesting thing that happens towards the end of that film with like a car accident on the freeway and just the way it was shot. And so when you see the final product here, it, it does feel that way, but I guess Wexler didn't want to do that. He wanted a more traditional studio approach, and so that's where they butted heads. But what's more interesting is he was replaced by uh, Bill Butler. So they reshot everything they could except that opening segment because that was a pain in the ass to block. And that. it's so fucking good. Why would you redo it, you know? Um, yeah. But what's strange is just two years later on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Like, a similar thing happened with uh, Vilma Zygmunt. Not Vilma, no, that's the wrong fucking person. Um, oh, uh, Milo's Foreman. Yeah, Foreman. Milo's yeah. Foreman. So I guess they had a similar conversation, and they, they fired Wexler, and he was replaced by Bill Butler. So, I wonder if Wexler <laughs> was hired to work on Jaws and then just quit before shooting. I don't know. It's, it's Bill a, Butler shot Jaws, and, you know, that movie was a pain <laughs> in the ass to shoot. So it, there had to the be, curse. like, a huge joke in town back then where I was like, uh, why don't we just get Bill Butler to shoot it? <laughs> and Wexler doesn't have credit on Days of Heaven. It's um, and there's big debate on that of who really won the Oscar for Days of Heaven for shooting it because it's half Wexler, uh, half the other guy Nestor. I can't remember his name. So yeah, um, seventies were not kind to Wexler, I guess. Unsung hero of cinema, I guess. Yeah. But like... his um, I, I guess him and his uh, his brother Sandy are were having a tough time in Hollywood. <laughs> Such a bad joke. <laughs> like... 
I'm sorry. The opportunity was there. I had to take it. Sandy Wexler would be way too. Well, I don't know. Maybe they would be about the same age. Now that I think about it. Yeah, they were probably about the same age. Um, but it, it's so strange to think about something like that happening here, like the Eric Stoltz thing, because it, it looks like it was always meant to feel this way. Just the like almost like tied the to the French connection. Like point. very. It's just it's tough to imagine that opening shot though working in yeah i have not seen the thomas crown affair but i'm imagining like a 60s just conventional thriller way maybe like i don't know something like hitchcock in the 60s maybe because i i, yeah. I want to say he was very influential on that but i haven't seen it so i don't know um and this is pretty close to a hitchcock movie but too. it's not you know it's not suave or stylistic or there's no flourishes this is rougher like the french connection really yeah i was gonna you say know? yeah it's, um, it's very similar to the french connection like you yeah. have not necessarily handheld, but there's no vistas, there's no postcards, no establishing shots. It's just like by yeah, it's, its, it's got a very gritty, grainy, yeah. like just rawness to just it. Just put that this camera here, shoot it this way. Let's have some really dark lights, like ambience, some shadows. Mm-hmm. Like nothing seems staged, really. Like it, it truly feels. Uh, like guerrilla filmmaking almost like you know it isn't because of, like the audio equipment that are involved and the actors on screen and a couple other things here um, and just how tight everything is how it's it's so composed so uh, beautifully in the script making but at the same time like it there, it's there's not a, a pretty film no there's just a, the locations are not exotic there is a rawness to it there's like, an energy maybe a little to less it. so compared to something like the fresh connection which is like well there's car uh, chases I mean, and some yeah some, and, and some like, actual foot chases and gun f- violence yeah like and, but you know. but it is it is very close to that i mean really though this is a character piece when you get down to it like the surveillance stuff is it's what hooks is really cool it's really fascinating but I still people are surprised whenever I talk about it this way and that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to rewatch it to see if I felt the same way but uh-huh. I still one of the ways I would describe this movie right off the bat when you ask me I find it super fucking emotional oh like, it is in, yeah. in a Gene, very understated way character where, like no, it's not understated. For me, like, like I want to fucking cry look, while this watching is, this movie. Well, the, that's how emotional it is for me. The score goes a long way with that. But this is some guy who's the expert in his field. His field is literally mm-hmm. listening to other people. He gets emotional about their lives more than he is about his own. You have the Terry well, Gar character. Their lives. He tries not to focus on he them. He tries like, not to, but look at his only emotional responses here. You have two characters. You got um, Terry Gar who literally is just this, like, shut-in that he, like, machiavelli that way. I have feelings for you. You know nothing about me. I'm not going to tell you anything about me. I'm just going to drop in unannounced every once in a while, hang out with you, maybe we have sex, and then I leave. So he has that, and then he has his co-worker Stan. Um, fuck, Frank Cazell? That, that's his uh, name, right? John Cazell, yeah. He was, like, in five movies before he died, which, I mean, you know, like, this isn't, which like, is one sad. of the great I still need to see games, Dog Day Afternoon. I still have to see it. That and, what else? There was Deer Hunter, and then there's the other two Godfather movies. But it's like, yeah. you, you know, this may not be one of his best roles, but he still had a hand in one of the best movies in the 70s. Like, that dude could have gone on to, like... Or, I mean, I mean, just keep going on, man, because every yeah. single movie that he's been in has been great in some way. So you have Stan, you have this right-hand man that is 100% on the way, like a lap dog, and he, Gene Hackman's character, treats him like shit, like mm-hmm. big time, to the point where he has to leave, he abandons him, and jumps ship and starts working at a different surveillance company, you know? And yeah. just 
imagine what it must be like to work with Harry Call, Gene Hackman's character, like on a daily basis. Or not even just work with, but be around is horrible, and you feel this sense of him being a loner. Like he knows he has to, you know. Like it, you get these little uh, breadcrumbs where it's like, oh, like uh, I don't have a problem with death. I have something against yeah, like, murder. Like- it's really when you get down to that sequence where that just explains the character in its entirety. Where like, you know, this is a guy that is a believer. You know, he does go to church. Yeah. He confesses, and well, it's, it's like it's a couple every... of films. So of course, there's some kind of Catholicism. Yeah, but like this is where it's so tragic is that this is someone who basically believes that throughout the entire movie he is worried that his work is going to get two people killed. Yeah, and that is something that has happened in his past that we find out about. And this is someone who believes that no matter what they do, they will cause harm in some way and that they're basically a force on Earth that exists only for that purpose and they cannot have any happiness for themselves. Like, you know, he's like he says that in that dream when he was a kid, he wouldn't have minded if he drowned. And then he goes on to say the specific thing of, you know, I once punched my dad's friend in the chest and then a year later he died. And it's like it's such a small thing, but yet he still feels some guilt for maybe potentially causing See, some that's... death there in some way. And it's like, I, I mean, it's so fucking tragic that this guy just feels like every single thing that he's going to do, he has to stay out of people's lives because he will fuck them up in some way. And it's, man, it's just so sad. It's like when that dream sequence happens is when I start becoming less a fan of this film. I love it until it becomes a psychological thriller. I love their surveillance angle, mm-hmm. how this is just like a, a portrait of a, a real unsung hero, essentially. Uh, very interesting. Just well, I think that's the part where you literally get to understand their psche at that point but that, and that's, just what it is that drives them. And it's not, this film didn't it's not feel in like an like one of those, obvious way, though. It didn't feel like a psychological thriller until that stuff started happening, though. Like, literally the dream sequence. So, like, the white noise that goes on with that and the way it cuts differently than the rest of the film. Like, it truly, the editing is just chaotic there. Whereas in the rest of it, it's, for the most part, like, a straightforward, like, old Hollywood way. And then after that, especially when you go to the hotel, when you go to... Um, the was a room seven seven three. When you mm-hmm. get admitted to that, and I'd already seen some of that sequence before. I might have mentioned this before in passing, either on one of our shows, just or in conversation. Yeah, the sound in that sequence for that big moment, uh-huh. like, really got to me the first time I saw well, that. I that just, was a big shocker. I, I, I want to say I was in a class, and I don't remember what we were learning, but it must have been about New Hollywood, and they showed that sequence. Like, I saw the bag, bummer. like, flush out or upwards from the toilet. Like, I saw, like, the blood splatter on the wall. Oh, that's, and that's terrible, e- Even though I didn't exactly yeah. remember it, I still knew, watching the film this time last night... You were night, recognizing it, like, oh, this is what's going to happen? Sort of. I, I knew that he was going to go to a hotel room at some point. I knew that that was going to be a pivotal point. Uh, gladly, you know, it's not that important. It just kind of sells on its cerebral nature, which I guess makes you, like, conscious as an observer, especially in the closing images of this film, where um, things could go if someone were listening to you at any given moment, which is very much so a possibility, not just at the time of this film, but now, as you said, it's timeless in that aspect. But Mm -hmm. I just... Maybe it's because Francis Ford Coppola was so busy on The Godfather Part Two editing that and how much he had to work on that that the editor truly had free reign like and final cut on this thing in a way but like those final 25 30 minutes when it truly stops being linear when it kind of jumps around with jump cutting and 
like you you start questioning things like it kind of feels like a Polanski film almost or like David Lynch or um, I can see that especially for where the hotel yeah bit goes it, changed, it like, almost was like the Shining's hotel like room I mean sequence. for the first time watching it though there was definitely this sense of dread and like you were t- I was totally invested in his fear that he was going to bring harm to these two people which you know uh, ultimately it ends up being something different we can mention that later but I mean, yeah like just as far as like his perspective i mean the stuff with the blood in the toilet i'm not so sure if like i like what? I, I thought like, about it, it's like is that something that is i think he's imagining this movie going right? a bit overboard i feel like he has to be like he's he had to imagine like, that because he punishes and the blood himself on the so he punishes himself so much in this and like just doesn't allow himself to like really get many moments of like peace or enjoyment that like i i feel like it, he's seeing it in a certain way that he's pushing it. i mean that, that's what's so sad about this character though is like you know he shuts himself in alone like you know and every time that he's about to open up like i mean the moment when they're back at his garage right which is probably like a good 20 to 30 minutes for the movie i think um it's, it's a good like, quarter it's of like it 20, it's yeah. amazing how quick that goes and yet it's actually pretty long when you work look at it but yeah the party but yeah, like you know, he go- he goes to the party. He's pretty quiet. You know, he's locking up all the stuff right when he gets there. He opens up to this woman that's there at the party, which is a huge fucking moment for him. Keeps yeah. on drinking a little bit, and he becomes a little bit more talkative and starts bragging a little bit. Seems to enjoy himself no, he's as you know, like he's straight he's on talking dancing about. With her. Yeah, no, but, like, even as they go on, like, you know, how they talk about the process of doing that recording out in that courtyard, and, like, you know, he's sharing bits of information and, like, just kind of bragging about how much of a hotshot he is, and it isn't, like, until, like, you know, he seems to be owning the space, and then when it's fucking taken away from him, just, that's when Harry just goes back to the spot that he was at, where, like, it's it's a fucking double whammy in the worst way, where, A, you know, he got fucking bugged, and it's a huge yeah. invasion of his privacy, and it's like, okay, no, he could not be that cocky or confident he lo- he just slipped let slip for one second and so then he reverts back immediately to just going back to this fucking you know this guy that basically has a stick up his ass that kind of I, guy i think it's more so but that then, he doesn't trust anyone and yeah i know and it's like he's he super trusting in this moment he trusts this yeah. girl obviously he's opening up to her verbally emotionally it's, it's like that's he the second doesn't exactly nail in the coffin where he just like you know he's opening up and uh, he kind of he lets himself get out there twice it happens one in a small way the small way the other one in a very intimate way and then it bites him in the ass both times and it's like you totally see why this guy is stuck in the way that he is and it's really really fucking sad well it's like especially given the moment that is used as playback from the bug that this dickhole moran who yeah isn't even it competition but he thinks he is yeah. literally recorded the most intimate like moment in his life possibly you in know? this movie for sure definitely in the movie it's a big deal for that character in that moment and you know it like because you know that this is a very private moment for these two specifically and then to find yeah. out oh no it's on there for display for everybody to see like that is fucking humiliating and just it's so sad like and yeah that's the moment where the party fucking ends at that point he can't have a good time and really if just that the, happened to when you he tries to be with people hey, it's like, if that happened to anyone you would fucking especially if it's your house that they're throwing the party anyone would fucking throw a hissy fit let me get this straight we're in the business of bugging people you bugged me at my own party 
that's a no-no, man. Like, but that, what makes this worse cool. is that you know this is a very big thing for him to admit. Something he's probably hasn't admitted to another woman in his life. Yeah. And it's not that big of a detail to us, but for someone that's this super private and, you know, is trying to make an effort, like, throughout it, because, like, this is really... There's several moments where, you know, you could, this title could literally be about just the titular conversation that they open, but it's also in a way just about him trying to like, you know, start a conversation in some way, like trying to make the steps to get out there and open up to meet people. And every time that he does it, there's something that forces him to wrap himself back in the cocoon. And it really, you just feel for the guy every time it happens. It's like we're talking about Lex Luthor here, if you're late to the episode. (laughs) We're talking about Harry Call, the Gene Hackman. It's like, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. He hasn't, uh, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't been in a big Hollywood production in quite some years now. Like, it was since, like, the mid-2000s. He was in The Score, which is really good. No, that's Robert De Niro. He's in the other one. Fuck, what's the other one? It's also a heist. It's called Heist. There you go. But... Outside of Heist, I can't think of the last time I saw Gene Hackman on screen at all. No, he's retired. Did he I retire? Think. Yeah. Huh. Well, that makes sense, son. You'd only act for so long. And when you give yourself, like, 100% in a film like he does here, and this is, you know, like, 40 years ago now, it makes sense. Like, this is, out of what I've seen him in, the least like him. Like, he's a laughable guy. He's, like, larger than life. Like mm-hmm. big and smile. I think he said like this was tough for him to like really get into the role, like yeah. because he's just nothing like this character whatsoever. He really you know, is the complete opposite of Popeye Doyle, too, who's just such a hard ass in the French Connection. Or fucking Lex Luthor. Like he was, he was casting that just a year or two after this, and it's night and day. Like it really <laughs> is. Like this is almost. I mean, he plays it so freaking well here. This is almost Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor. Uh, like it's almost th- like no, no over the top shit going on, but just in terms of like the character himself and his fears, and he doesn't trust anyone. And well, you know, a billionaire being over the top, I don't think is implausible yeah. to me. But I mean, you know, then again, eh, well, well, I don't know. There was no such thing as Lep's Corp in uh, the Donner ones, was there? No, he was a fucking poor yeah, he... dude that lived in a subway, like j- just yeah. the weirdest version of Lex Luthor. In all of those original Superman, even even in the Superman Returns film, like that's just not Lex Luthor. Like not, he's supposed to be a mogul. No, it's the same. It's the same one. Yeah. I mean, that one's just a dude that is based off Hackman's version. I think is a continuation of that, and just gets money from this rich widow. That's a shame. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't have many problems with this film, but like I mentioned, oh, I don't like the dream. Right before the dream happens is when I start going, what the fuck is going on in this film? Like, the last 25 minutes or something. When, literally, you know, he has this conversation with the girl, he gets bugged, he kicks everyone out. She stays for reasons unknown. Like, it's like, why would she stay with him? That's kind of weird. She fucks him, basically seduces him. He has the dream while she's there with him. And Mm -hmm. then, to make it even worse, when he wakes up, she's gone. The tapes are gone. And it's implied that... Either she was working for the company that he was doing the surveillance for, or someone broke into his place, which is unlikely, while he was asleep. I am pretty sure that she did it, and that's why she would have stayed. But also at that point within the narrative, she is the one that's backing him up when he says get out, and she's just kind of like, yeah, go, guys. Like I think she literally says that she'll stay with him, you know, and... That was a moment of privacy where, from his perspective, it does seem like, you know, that was violated, too, for her. And, you know, they were connecting at that point. 
So in a way, like her, I I would say like you know her staying there seemed like more like a gesture See, that's, of comfort. That's what and I then, don't like though. Like where do I, we... I don't mind that? I totally I no totally no buy not that. that. It's the after the ma- aftermath, right? So oh, yeah, it's a total blow. And it's it like really sucks. No, but... I'm I'm saying even beyond that. This is some person that he knows. He clearly is colleagues with not necessarily her, but her employer. If you just had maybe not a one night stand, but you just hooked up with someone. They fucking dicked you hard, stole, like, your prized possession and gave it to someone. You're still getting paid, so it's not that big a deal. And then, you know, a couple of minutes later, you find out that you got bugged in your own home. You're not gonna... I want to see the scene. Maybe it's cut. Like, I think something like the director's cut is, like, four and a half hours or something fucking ridiculous. There's a director's cut for this? I don't think you can find it, but it was, like, the original... Basically, assembly, okay? Like, the original running time was, like, four hours. Um... I want to see him call this girl, be like, hey, did you have a good time fucking me the other night? Because you fucked me twice. First with my clothes off, and then with my clothes on. I want my tapes. Like, I, I want First that First off, I don't think this character would say that, and I, think I don't he think would. they even got phone numbers. He would. Th- his business is surveillance. If some ran, if Harrison Ford can find his phone number, you don't think that he can find this girl's number? Well, he's got to find her name first. I don't he know. knows does he, her. Does he have that? Trust me. Like, like I said, he. I don't is know if there's enough colleagues with her employer in the story. He, I I don't doubt that he could, as a character, figure it out. But I don't think there's enough information presented in this story and in, in the way that's presented to he, us. He would to- where they were we comfortable with each other. They knew each other. I for one night. No, no like, for it's, one it's night. One that, night stand. No, for one night that we see, they clearly yeah. knew one another. Like it wasn't. A, oh, let well, that me... wasn't clear to me. For me, it was just a one-night stand. They when, mentioned, like, the, when you know, Moran a does party his... after convention the year before where they did the same thing. Yeah, like, Moran being, like, in the same realm, them meeting up several times. I was led to believe that this girl has worked for him for some time, that it might even be, like, his, his like, steady thing on the side when he's on the road. Um, I don't know. I just... I, that That's when I start looking at things through, like, not rosy tinted glasses the fact like i said the dream sequence happens with her i, the I falling like out wish with her where you would want him to be the guy to like call not her even out just like that, that. It's but just... he's got i mean th- th- you know that there's a lot of other things going on in his mind where you know this is a guy that's catholic i do feel like even for that one night stand he feels like a bit guilty, guilty of that the first time he confesses in confession he doesn't say i've had relations with women he says i'm guilty of impure thoughts so to him for presumably have sex with someone one night, like that's a big fucking deal for him. If he's just gonna I don't know. feel bad about impure thoughts, so I mean, what's like, what's worse? Uh, basically, extortion. Like you have a deal with someone to survey some, a target, you go back on it, you hold that material, you wait, you get the money, and then you have a guilty well, conscience granted, though, for some like, reasons. It, like everything about that deal, like just based on how we understand it, too, it's fishy. Like right off the bat, how just. I mean, he's he has the arrangements specifically to see Robert Duvall. Then he goes to the office. Harrison Ford escorts him and says, like, oh, he'll see you in a few minutes, and then waits at the desk, baits him with that cookie, and then just grabs the tapes themselves. Like, you, you know, right off the bat, it's impossible for this guy to trust anybody. And then the second he lets his guard down, he gets fucked. Like, that's, that's the world that Harry Call is in. He just can't trust anybody that's how i mean and that's just sad like the way that the movie presents it there's not speaking of we've used that name several times it's spelled c-a-u-l it happens one time in the film no his name is harry call 
Harry means there's something fishy going on. Call meaning it's bugged. This is a Harry call. Like th- that's like <laughs> too on the nose. Never name it. Works, a- I think. It does work. It's just it's yeah. the weirdest, like almost laughable character name in this film that you kind of forgive because it's a very serious movie. But it's like, oh, that's like the one joke that's going on right here. Um, among others, it's it, it just it's so. I weird. think it's a nice touch, just because like when you say the name and you don't know what the what the point of it is like or just a little in joke in there it's it works as a common name it's, you know it's a it's a weird name choice but uh really mo- moving on to the final moment here when you're in that hotel room and the film kind of unravels it it really mm-hmm. saves itself when you get the final scene in my opinion but those final like 25 minutes where things really really become chaotic between going to the hotel and you're not sure if you're seeing things that are actually happening or it's his psyche or his guilt or whatever. Um, like, did he actually witness the murder? Like what's going on? Was someone even murdered to begin with? Yeah. Uh, like the, the limo, him showing up in the office. Oh, here's the tapes. And then when it all like culminates or like uh, congeals into him being at home and getting the phone call from Harrison Ford saying, Oh, we have a dossier on everyone. Let me play back you playing your saxophone in your room. It's like, well, he tore up his whole fucking house. He freaked out. He even broke his proof that he's not, like, a serious, serious, serious Catholic. Well, keep in mind that, you know, even though it's joked about as a device, they talk about Moran's device where you make that, you dial the phone number, yeah, and then you play the harmonica. Seconds, play yeah, the harmonica. Yeah. I mean, the first time he gets the call, he hangs up, So and then he goes back to just playing jazz. But... Uh, you know, the assumption to me is that that activated some sort of recording device within the phone or like some mic in there and then they captured it and then they played it back for him. Maybe. I, you know, I don't I don't know the technical specifications of it, but that's that's basically the best I could come up with there. I think it's more like just because see, I can't trust the film after a certain point. Once they go and have the party in his where in his factory or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. his, his back cave. That's when it's no, there isn't a trustworthy narrator. Like the the perspective is unhinged. That it is no well, longer th- in the realm of reality. That there is psychological factors at play. That it becomes there, more of just, a thriller. It's a, it's a well, I, I do like the thriller aspects of it. Like nearly, especially in the last third, it works as entertainment. The stuff at the hotel, and then the final payoff that you get of the reveal of what the conversation at the beginning was actually about. But, you know, when you get to that ending, like just of him ripping the apartment and he can't find the bug, that to me is far more chilling. Just this idea that, you know, like, yeah, I mean, you you can be spied on and like, I mean, well, that's the entire point. But then, yeah, like I, I think it all it doesn't feel so cheesy when it pays off to that, that you could be watched or listen, you they could be listening to you and you wouldn't even know how they're doing it. Like, you know, the the presumption right now is like. I think it's easier now to assume these things based on smartphones or any device that could be connected to the internet. You know, even this microphone that I'm speaking into right now that is being cataloged on some database somewhere, some drive somewhere in the world, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, just because we know more about these things now. But like back then, like just this idea that, hey, you could be looked in on and you wouldn't even know it. And like, even then, like, you know, the device may not even be in his room. It could be on the floorboards of the room above for all we know, like, it it's really chilling just this idea like there is no such thing as privacy i just it's it's like i said i the film ends on a really great note it has that like great mm-hmm. final shot and, and you just 
takes comfort in the one thing that he can trust, which is jazz and his saxophone. Not even talking about that. It's just more so I might have issues with the film, but the way it kind of sum- summarizes with, oh, there is no answer. It just ends. And that he might have done some fucked up things. This might have not happened, this, but this is still what he went through. That if, you, you know, like your, your own mind is your worst enemy in most situations, because whatever you think could happen is worse than any possibility. Like, that's, like, the true horror of uh, the real world, you know? I still feel like his horrors, though, did come to fruition, just not in the ways that he expected. And it's, like, you you know, he is still somewhat, uh, I don't know, he feels somewhat responsible for what happens in the end, even though he isn't in any way. No, he's he's 100% responsible. He, He played, well... It's weird. He without, played back the tape, but it was only a conversation where they were planning on killing I don't even mean the conversation, him. but in terms of he was hired to do a job. He did the job 100%, even if he, you know, did it and he was getting played the whole time. If they, it was uh, a switcheroo. But at the same time, if he hadn't been hired, if there was no recording, Robert Duvall wouldn't have went to the hotel room. He would have not got killed if he got killed at all, you know? Um, so it's... He, he is guilty. Like, he's guilty for the murder that happened before that and before that. And he's especially uh, guilty well, for the way that he treats people, even the ones that care about him. It's questionable because, well, I, I guess, yeah, because that was Robert Duvall's wife. For, for whatever reason, like, I was thinking daughter throughout the film. Oh, yeah. But then I realized, like, wait, no, that's totally the wife. They they even mentioned that, the newscasters and, and he has, uh, everyone yeah. in that room. But, yeah, like, it's, it's funny, like, I, I mean, if I go back, I probably could pick it out specifically but you are seeing this through like just the bits and pieces that uh harry call is exposed to throughout so it's not entirely uh, clear cut to me but there's enough I guess, there yet. that you connect with it but still like it's it, it's just sad man like as i just of basically this is a character piece of just someone that's basically doomed in this life where they you know they he can't kill himself or do anything like you know is, is very religious tries to follow those things but every time he tries to do something good for himself it backfires and every time he does something it's gonna hurt somebody else like that that's a it's a very sad existence to live i think it's more uh, accurate to say i think it's more accurate to say that this is a film where our perspective is whatever harry lets us see because when you throw in um the subconscious if we're Mm -hmm. seeing his dreams you know which only happens after he opens up to us or the other characters mostly us one of the only moments where I felt like we had a true naked connection, like a one-on-one, just uh, it's clear-cut that there isn't any shielding going up, that he isn't keeping things from us or we're keeping it from him, are those final moments when he is stripping all the floorboards and Mm -hmm. wallpaper and taking off the chandeliers and everything, when he completely removes everything from his existence. And as you pointed out, you know, he has at least a saxophone, which is funny because he didn't check his saxophone. That could have been what was bugged. Or I think, <laughs> it could have been, yeah. I think uh, what Coppola That's actually... That's true, the one thing that he has any emotional connection to, and they he wouldn't check it. It's like Coppola, apparently, his... Uh, that could very well be it, now that you say it. His conclusion is that either it's the strap that the saxophone is held onto, or it's all in his mind and he was never bugged to begin with, which would make more sense in the film just because, like I said, once things really when get you see going... the stuff with the toilet and Yeah, that, like it's... Yeah. What is can we actually take this at face value? Is is this happening? Which isn't one of my favorite things in cinema. I, I like 
true films, not psychological explorations. But it it works really well. It's a very effective movie. It's shot brilliantly. It it has a great score. The acting is unparalleled, especially for these like bit roles from people that went on to go places. We were talking about Harrison Ford mm-hmm. for a minute. He was supposed to be like yes. a five second role, kind of like Apocalypse Now, and then he gets a very chunky role. Um, uh, you get Tar- Terry Gar, who sadly in only one scene when she's really good here. This is like right at the beginning of her career. I think Young Frankenstein was like a year before this, so she really hadn't done anything yet. Uh, Mr. Mom is like 10 years after this, which is still totally underrated. Um, Never saw it. I, I love her. I wish she, I mean, I don't know if she's got the right people to do comedy still, but great comedic timing. She was totally underrated in the 80s. Tootsie, I know you haven't seen that. She's the, it's her and Dustin Hoffman. Great chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, everything here. It's, it's a very, very solid movie. Like I said, I, I'm not a Coppola fan. I, I like his daughter's films on the most part more than I like his, but it, I, I can't knock it. it. It really throws away a lot of like the pro-Italian stuff that The Godfather has or like family dynamics or any of like these long gestating um, just... Uh, themes or storylines it's not an adventure this is just a single moment in one guy's life that just so happens to be very interesting and uh there's a lot to take away from it it's it's really just a a marvelous movie It, it truly truly is special even if i don't like all of it i think the fact that i had issues with some of the stuff is just um it's an example of how good it is that I wanted to like it more than I did, and yet I'm I'm totally forgiving, which is a, a true sign. This is a total buy for me, but um, I mean, yeah, you know, it's something that just doesn't really, I don't feel like it's giving you clear cut expectation, um, explanations, and like, it, in some ways, can throw you off. But then again, there's enough threads there that you can connect different interpretations out of that just um i mean because it is it's very weird how i i I think i'm more interested in like it it just in seeing this final third of the movie more is just like the stuff of like just a straight thriller that's paying off and it is exciting to me in that way but uh, yeah at the same time there is a lot of weird stuff where you you do have to think about it and go like well yeah how the fuck does that tie in with it because that's 10 that tends to be the stuff where especially just on the final note of this movie, I, I tend to forget that as I try to, like, really nail the impression that this makes on me, and, like, it has to be brought up, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, wait a minute, actually, what the fuck was up with the blood coming out of the toilet, you know? It's weird. Um, but, I mean, yeah, just, uh, like, just as a character piece, like, it, it's very, very emotional for me and just heartbreaking to watch, and that's not something that I commonly hear about about this movie when people talk about it or they mention it but that is the experience that I have with it and it's it's just it's a very beautiful very sad movie for me um uh, just b- based on Hackman's performance and that score and just like of, of just this guy that's trying to get out there and uh, you know just connect and d- it doesn't get the chance is kind of like locked into the work that he's doing and at the same time he's doing something very extraordinary that makes for a really fascinating plot that's just really thrilling to see unravel. Yeah, this is a total buy for me, man. Yeah, I'd buy it for a dollar two, and it's not even worth that, or better than that. You don't have to spend it to see it, because as of right now, it's on Amazon Prime, so you can yep. see it if you're a subscriber. That's how I did it. It's not the best digital copy, but it's good enough. It's uh, standard def, too. That's the thing. Yeah, it's worth your time. 
Uh, if you haven't seen it, if you're a fan of Coppola's films, which means the three that you're aware of, unless you're a fan of Jack 2, um, yeah, please watch it, give it a chance, let us know what you thought, and let us know if you agree or disagree with what we had to say. Thanks for listening. We hope it's been a pleasure. If you like this show and you want to hear more of our wonderful voices on a weekly basis, check out Two Cents, a recap of what's happened in film, TV, and tech news. We're also on the titular Dollar Review Show, a spoiler-free critique of new releases or anything we've discovered on our own, whether that be TV, music, etc. You can find all of our content at dollarreviews.net. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook at Dollar Reviews. And we're also on Google Play Music, iTunes, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, just about anywhere on the internet with hours of content available to you for free. But for those of you that feel that the show is worth your dollar, you can send us a donation at patreon.com slash dollarreviews. Contributions not only earn our undying love, but they also make it possible for us to improve our recording equipment and to give you the highest quality episodes possible. But more importantly, they'd be helping us acquire the content to review. You know, trips to the multiplex are expensive, and the more donations we receive, the more films we can review for your listening pleasure. If you listen somewhere we're currently not available, you'd like to contribute some talking points, send a debt to cinema request, or if you just want to laugh at us, you can do so by reaching out to us on social media or send an email to brian at dollarreviews.net. Or you can email me as well, steve at dollarreviews.net. You can follow me personally on Twitter, at Brian Gillis, that's B-R-Y-O-N-G-I-L-L-I-S, and now you know how to spell the email too, and also under the same name on the Love You site, Letterboxd, which acts as my film diary, where I rate films that I'm watching, write the occasional review, and even sometimes compile lists. You can also find me on Twitter at S underscore MTX, and also follow my film diary at Letterboxd under the same name, where I log everything I watch, and sometimes write brief reviews. That's it for this week. Until next time, keep the change.